Hello, and welcome to A Nice Cup of History. This week we dive back into the history of the British monarchy, with a king known for having a good time and bringing the country out of a puritanical dark age of around nine years. With this week's ridiculous death, we find out why hiding your lover in a cupboard might not always be the best idea. So, let's get historical. On the 29th of May, 1630, England was in the midst of the Stuart dynasty, a Scottish offshoot of the Tudor and Plantagenet lines, married into the Scottish royal line. Upon the death of Elizabeth I in March 1603, the throne passed to her cousin, Jane VI of Scotland, who then became James I of England. Despite plots against him, he survived and his son, Charles I, succeeded him. And on the 29th of May, his son and heir, also called Charles, was born at St James's Palace to his wife, Henrietta Maria, sister of the French King Louis XIII. He was actually the second son, but his older brother only lived for a day, making Charles the heir. He was baptised on the 27th of June, waiting a little while to ensure that he survived due to the high infant mortality rate at the time, even amongst the upper classes. He was raised in a Protestant household under the care of the Countess of Dorset, but his uncle, Louis XIII, and his maternal grandmother, Marie de Medicini, Medici, close, were his godparents, and they were both Catholic. At this time, England had been going through a back-and-forth pendulum swing from Catholicism and Protestantism, started by Henry VIII and the dissolution of the monasteries. This was um, done to allow him to divorce Catherine of Aragon and to marry Anne Boleyn. Here's just a story we'll sink our teeth into readily at some point, which I'm very much looking forward to, because Henry VIII is my bae. Uh, at his birth, Charles was invested with the titles of the Duke of Cornwall and the Duke of and Rothsey. Um, he was named Prince of Wales, aged eight, though never formally invested. Not that there was much time for that, as things sort of hit the fan whilst he was still young. Now, dear old dad Charles I had, shall we say, a minor skirmish with the Parliament of the time called the English Civil War. Maybe you've heard of it? Only a little bit. Uh, if you've listened to our previous podcast about Oliver Cromwell, you'll know that things didn't go too well for the king. Long story short, he was arrested, tried and executed on the 30th of January 1649, killing off the monarchy and setting a dangerous precedent where Parliament was the more powerful than the ruling head of state. Young Charlie actually accompanied his father to the Battle of Edgehill, aged only 14, and was made commander of the English forces in the West Country, so Devon and Cornwall way. In 1645, so about 15 years old, things had started to turn by 1646 and it was clear that the Royalists, or Cavalier Army, were losing the war. Charles fled for his safety, leaving from Falmouth, hopping from the Isles of Scilly off the coast of Cornwall to Jersey in the Channel Islands and then landing in France, meeting up with his mother, who was currently in exile, and his cousin and newly made King of France, the then eight-year-old Louis XIV. Charles I surrendered and was captured in May 1646. A second civil war sparked up in 1648, but it wasn't very effective. And though Charlie had a fleet as well as help from his sister Mary and her husband William II, the Prince of Orange, which is in the Netherlands, he wasn't able to link up with their allies in Scotland, led by the Duke of Hamilton. Hamilton's forces were defeated at the Battle of Preston, and Charlie turned instead to diplomacy in an effort to end the conflict and save his father. But it didn't work, and Charles I was beheaded. His father's death made Charles II King of Scotland. He was declared as such at the Murcat Cross in Edinburgh on the 5th of February 1649, 
they technically declared him King of Great Britain, France and Ireland, but that bit didn't really count. He kept the Scottish throne until 1651, when he was deposed, but was not allowed to actually enter Scotland without accepting Presbyterianism, which is their version of Protestantism, as the main religion in Britain and Ireland. He tried to make the Scots submit by force, a tactic that wouldn't actually work until much later on when the Jacobite rebellions were crushed at the Battle of Culloden in 1745. Charlie organised a threat in the form of General Montrose landing in the Orkney Islands, which is a collection of islands north of the Scottish coast. Montrose was worried that Charlie would accept a compromised offer from the Scots, so he decided to go ahead and invade. This was a daft mistake, and he was captured and executed. This forced Charlie to agree to the Treaty of Breda, authorising Presbyterian rule across Britain. He was allowed to enter Scotland on the 23rd of June 1650 to formally agree to the treaty, or the Solemn League and Covenant, as it was called, although he came to hate the people that had forced him into it. Cromwell defeated the so-called Covenanters at the Battle of Dunbar in September 1650, and Charles used the chance to try and escape the Presbyterian forces, but he was soon caught by them. He was crowned King of Scotland at Scone Abbey on the 1st of January 1651. He still fought for the English throne, that was his birthright, but was defeated by Cromwell's forces on the 3rd of September 1651 at the Battle of Worcester, fleeing to the European mainland in disguise, leaving England in the hands of Cromwell and his Puritan rule as Lord Protector, basically a de facto king or dictator. Young Charlie, however, spent his time in exile moving from country to country, first in Normandy on the 16th of October, then the Dutch Republic, and then the Spanish Netherlands, the part of the country under Spanish rule at the time. There is a, a reward of £1,000, and anybody helping him risked death. He travelled in disguise, which actually wasn't easy, because he was over six foot tall, which was quite unusual for the time. Um, without crown, country, or home, Charlie basically lived in poverty, surviving on the help and charity of those willing to shelter him. Despite his family connections, through though his mother was uh, French royalty and his sister was Dutch nobility, he wasn't able to mount a decent challenge to Cromwell. The Dutch Republic allied themselves with Cromwell in 1654, meaning Charlie only had one way to turn, Spain. In 1656, he negotiated the Treaty of Brussels, which promised Spanish support in return for his help in the war against France. Meanwhile, the Commonwealth of Britain allied themselves in the Treaty of Paris with France against the Spanish. Charlie led a rough-round-the-edges army of his exiled subjects, who were poorly equipped and badly disciplined. His younger brother, James Duke of York, led the Royalist Spanish forces. His army totaled around 2,000, and in 1658 they clashed with Commonwealth troops at the Battle of Dunes. They lost half of their forces and ceded Dunkirk to the English, putting a stop to any plans of the Royalists then progressing on to England. Then, in 1658, Oliver Cromwell died. What a shame. Oh dear, our hearts <clears throat> break. I am so very sorry this happened. <laughs> sorry? Anyway, uh, Charlie didn't seem to have much of a chance at first, as his son, Richard Cromwell, succeeded as Lord Protector. As we mentioned before, however, he wasn't very effectual, having had basically no military training or administrative experience, so he was forced to step down in 1659 by the Rump Parliament, effectively bringing the Commonwealth to an end. The Governor of Scotland, George Monk, was worried that this would cause another civil war, so he gathered his army and marched on London, forcing the Rump Parliament to bring back members that had been excluded, and the first general election for 20 years was held. 
The new parliament was almost equally divided between royalists and parliamentarians, and in April 1660, the Declaration of Breda was agreed, promising Charlie leniency and promised him the ability to rule as long as he cooperated with Parliament and promised not to exile past enemies and to pardon all opponents except those directly responsible for Renicide or the King of the King, his father. That's that's kind of fair that, you know, don't take it out on everybody but the ones that killed your dad. Yeah, we get it. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll let you be pissed yeah. at them for a bit. We'll let that one happen. Yeah, I mean, it's your dad. I guess. Um, A convention was uh, called in Ireland and they declared Charlie as well. So a message was sent to him in Breda from the English Parliament inviting him to return. He left for England, landing in Dover on the 25th of May 1660, arriving in London on his 30th birthday, the 29th of May 1660. Do you feel like he did a little bit more than us before his 30th? I mean... In, in fairness, best to my knowledge, my dad was not a king, so... Still yeah. feel like he accomplished a little more than we did. Yeah, that's that's not even a start on Alexander the Great. We'll do that one later. If yeah. you want to feel insignificant. <laughs> <laughs> um, Charlie agreed to the Act of Indemnity and Oblivion, which gave amnesty to the majority of Cromwell's supporters, excluded just 50, and only nine of the people accused of regicide were executed by being hung, drawn and quartered. So he definitely wanted them dead. Yeah, that's that's like, there is no, no backsies. No, that is a painful, long, drawn out <laughs> death. <laughs> there's dead and then there's dead. Yeah. And that is dead. Yep. Um, Oliver Cromwell, Henry Ayrton and John Broadshaw, the main ringleaders of the parliamentary forces, they were already dead at this point, but that wasn't good enough for good old Charlie. No. Um, he exhumed, dug up the mm-hmm. bodies, had them post posthumously uh, decapitated and had their heads displayed as traitors. I get I get the sense that he was he was angry. I mean I'm I'm sensing anger here. I think it was more of proving a point. Yeah, to be fair, I yeah, I get it. Um Charlie was declared King Charles II and given an annual income by Parliament of one point two million pounds with which to run the government. Wow, that's a lot now, but back then, jeez. He consistently overspent well wow. <laughs> um and the income from custom and excise duties was actually lower than expected because his income came from custom and excise but he overspent the budget and the money that they were expecting him to get was never enough um taxes were then imposed and economies were attempted from the royal household to try and raise a bit more money um charlie was distracted by family matters however as towards the end of 1660 he lost his youngest brother henry and his sister mary to smallpox and it turns out his brother james had secretly married one anne hyde daughter of lord chancellor edward hyde and she was pregnant Ooh. can anyone spell shotgun possibly <laughs> um charlie made hyde the earl of clarendon thereby making a strong ally from a potentially awkward situation. That was politically very savvy. He's clever. Yeah. At his moments. Um, the temporary parliament was dissolved in December 1660, not long after the official coronation, and a second, more royalist parliament was established. A number of religious reforms were passed to try and bring Britain back under the control of the Church of England, but social changes had more of an impact. Um, Theatres were reopened, having been closed during Cromwell's time, and restoration comedies became a genre of play that was somewhat of a tonic to the preceding dark times. Charlie granted licences to theatres that women be allowed to act on stage instead of the roles being played by androgynous men. 
Makeup, sports, Christmas, art and music all experienced a resurgence and Britain was once again a celebrated source of art and science. It wasn't all parties and plays, however. Charlie did encounter some hiccups, shall we say. In 1665, arguably the greatest disaster of his reign struck, with a peak death toll of some 7,000 a week, recorded in week commencing 17th of September 1665, the Great Plague had come. Charlie uprooted his family in court, fleeing London for the safety of Salisbury, whilst Parliament convened in Oxford. The plague did seem to die down over the winter months, and in February 1666 it was deemed safe for the king to return to London. But then he jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire, literally. (laughs) The weather in summer 1666 was hot. Very hot. Like, for England that has to be very, very hot. That must have been a tad warm. And it was very dry. Like, bigger than hose hose pipe pan level dry. This turned the wooden and thatched construction of the City of London into a tinderbox. On the 2nd of September, 1666, a stray ember from a bakehouse on Pudding Lane caught fire. A strong easterly wind turned the fire into an inferno, consuming a total of just over 13,000 homes, 87 churches and St Paul's Cathedral itself. Charlie and his brother James actually joined and helped direct the firefighting effort. He was a dude, I like him. He was good. The finger of blame was pointed at Catholic conspirators and one man, Robert Hubert from France, was wrongfully hanged following a false confession. Quick moment of silence for Robert Hubert. Moment over. It was all an accident, however. Started by a stray ember and exacerbated by strong winds, stockpiles of wood and fuel prepared for the winter months and a long, hot summer. It was essentially a devastating freak accident. There's nothing anybody could have done to to stop it. That's sad. It is sad, but... And we can we owe all of our information of this to Samuel Pepys. So thank you, Samuel Pepys, for your excellent diary keeping. Proof that keeping a diary is a good thing. I've kept a diary like every year of my life. I try, but then after about three days, I forget. And then five months, five years down the line, I find it in the bottom of the cupboard somewhere. I'll be like, oh, well, oh my god, I was an emo for three days. For three days. Wow, that's I exciting. Have, I have a problem with commitment. I'm surprised I've been doing this for so long. Right, switching now to his personal life. Charlie had a bit of a mixed bag when it came to marriage and foreign policy, shall we say? Um, negotiations had begun during his father's reign to the Portuguese princess Catherine of Braganza, daughter of John IV, who became king of Portugal after overthrowing the Spanish Habsburg rule. They signed a marriage treaty on the 23rd of June 1661, and England received the regions of Tangier in North Africa, the Seven Islands of Bombay, and trading privileges in Brazil and the East Indies as a dowry along with about 2 million Portuguese crowns, which is about £300,000. In return, Portugal gained both military and naval support in their fight for independence against Spain. Um, In the run-up to 1665, the English encroached on Dutch territories in Africa and North America, actions which led to the Second Dutch War, which lasted from 1665 to 1667. It started well for England, capturing New Amsterdam and renaming it New York in honour of James, Duke of York. There was a further victory at the Battle of Lowestoft, but the Dutch retaliated by sailing up the River Thames and sunk all the ships in the English fleet, save for the Royal Charles, which was taken as a trophy back to the Netherlands. So the only ship he had left was the one named after him, and that got stolen as a trophy. 
Yeah. Ouch. Uh, the Treaty of Breda ended the war, and Charlie used Lord, Chan- Lord Chancellor Edward Hyde as the scapegoat and dismissed him, and he was charged with high treason, which everyone knows carried a death penalty, so Hyde fled to France. At home, there was still some conflict between the Crown and Parliament. Charlie issued the 1672 Royal Declaration of Indulgence. That sounds fun. That does sound fun. It sounds something like Charles II would do. Yeah. Um, this suspended all penal laws against dissent- from Dissent. dissenters from Catholicism. Sorry, uh, that's my handwriting there. And other religions, and then supported France, a Catholic country, in the Third Dutch War. This declaration didn't go down very well with Parliament, who claimed that the king didn't have the right to suspend their laws. Charlie withdrew the declaration and agreed to further acts that forced public officials to denounce some Catholic teachings. So as far as like Catholicism was going, he took one step forward, two steps back. Really. Yeah. Um, apparently that law, I've also looked into it, also forced ministers to, um, to take the sacraments, which is like the, the bread and water that's offered. So even if they didn't believe in the sacraments as they saw, if they believed in the Catholic sacraments, they still had to take them. Oh, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Catherine of Braganza, you remember that? Yeah. That woman? Uh, she was unable to, v- to provide Charlie with a living heir. All four of her pregnancies ended in either stillbirth or miscarriage. Oh, bless her. This meant that his heir was his brother, the Catholic James, Duke of York. Charlie sensed the anti-Catholic feeling and agreed to marry his niece, James's daughter, Mary, to the Protestant William of Orange. Anti-Catholic hysteria then reached a peak, however, and the House of Commons introduced the Exclusion Bill with the aim of excluding James from the succession, in favour of the Duke of Monmouth, who was the eldest of Charlie's illegitimate children. Of which he had many. Yeah, well, <laughs> m- most kings did. Yeah, true, true. If a woman did that, though, no, 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 she would die. But a man, poof, do what yeah. he wants. Um, as a reaction to this, Charles um, dissolved Parliament, and when they didn't come back with a more moderate Parliament, he dissolved it again. And then after another Parliament failed to meet his expectations... He dissolved them again. (laughs) Uh, Charles then ruled without a parliament for the remainder of his reign. During which next to nothing went wrong. Just going to put that out there. Just just saying. Um, The Rye House plot was hatched to murder the king on the way home from the Newmarket horse races. But fire destroyed where he was staying at Newmarket and he had to leave early, meaning that he avoided the attack. The Newmarket races are actually this weekend. Are they? Yeah, Yeah. And do you know what tomorrow is? His birthday. His birthday. It's all. This is all happening here. It's a coinky dink. It and you is. know where we live near? Lower New- Stoft. And Newmarket. And Newmarket. Um, ah. Oh. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> Carrie's just having a bit of a I live in a historical place moment. Sidetrack. <laughs> um, so he avoided the attack, and when the plot was uncovered, several Protestant politicians were implicated, including Arthur Capel, the first Earl of Essex, who slit his own throat whilst imprisoned in the Tower of London to avoid prosecution. That... You have to be determined to do that. Yeah, you have to know that you want to die to to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, His cohorts, Algernon Sidney and Lord William Russell, were executed, although the evidence against them was weak at best. Others held in the Tower were later released. On the 2nd of February, 1685... Charlie suffered an apoplectic fit and died four days later mm. at 11.45am, aged 54, at Whitehall Palace. That's really young. It, it really is. 
Um, the speed of his illness and death led to suspicions of poison, but it has since been found that his cause of death is possibly linked to uremia, which is resulting from defective kidney, so basically kidney failure. Um, he was subject to a lot of horrible tortures disguised as treatment, such as bloodletting and purging, which frankly would have done more harm than good. I mean, if they'd have treated him right, they could have saved him, but by uh, by purging, they're basically cleansing his body of everything and removing his blood, the, the things that he needs, nutrients and blood, and they're taking it away from him. Um, they also did cupping, which is where they, they heat the inside of a cup and then put it to your skin to make the blood rise to the surface. So he would have been covered in burning hot cups all over him whilst vomiting, diarrhoea and being bloodlet. The cupping thing is now a massage technique used in different massaging places. Yeah, it has virtually no mm. medicinal properties, but holistic, yes, but medicinal, no. Yeah, well, you say, like, um, if they'd treated it well, they assumed he was poisoned. Yeah. So they wouldn't have known that how, or they wouldn't even thought that it might have been his kidneys, so... Yeah. Um, on his deathbed, he asked his brother James to look after his mistresses, and um, he said to his courtiers, I am sorry, gentlemen, for being such a time a-dying. Basically, he's saying sorry for taking so long to die. Um, he was baptised a Catholic on his deathbed, though some do say he may have been coerced and may not have been in of sound mind. Um, and he was buried in Westminster Abbey on the 14th of February, 1685, um, with very little pomp and circumstance, apparently. It was quite a quiet burial for a king. But he was a king? He was he was the, the king that brought back kings. Oh, so I was expecting you to say something different then. I, I know you were. I was waiting for it. I was, was going was was to was gonna, so judge you. The references are to come. Fabulous. His brother James succeeded him as James II of England and Ireland and James VII of Scotland. He left behind no legitimate children, but had several by seven mistresses, including Barbara Villiers, Moll Davies, Nell Gwynne, Elizabeth Killigrew, Catherine Page, Lucy Walter and Louise de Carrier. He earned himself the nickname of Old Rowley, named after his favourite racing stallion, because he was such a stud. Well... His subjects were bothered by their taxes going to his mistresses and children and then being given dukedoms or earldoms. But the current dukes of Buckley, Richmond, Grafton and St Albans are descended from him in an unbroken male line and even Diana, Princess of Wales, was descended from him, making Prince William the first British monarch who is a direct descendant of Charles Charles II when he becomes King William V. That's really cool. That is really cool. Um, His reign has been viewed from the Protestant side as despotic and indulgent, as they would. Boring. But from the other side as good old days. John Wilmot, the second Earl of Rochester, said, Rest as he rolls from whore to whore, a merry monarch, scandalous and poor. He was a patron of art and science, founding the Royal Society and Royal Observatory, and was a patron of Sir Christopher Wren, who helped rebuild London, rebuilt St Paul's Cathedral as we see it now, and who built the Royal Hospital Chelsea, which was a home for retired soldiers. He also founded the Royal Mathematical School in London and the King's Hospital in Dublin. He might be remembered as the Merry Monarch, the Party King and the Man of Many Mistresses, but he did a lot for the furtherance of art, science and education. So thank you, King Charles II, for restoring the monarchy and bringing back fun to Britain. Aww. I like... I love Charles II. He's he's brilliant. You... you you're always guaranteed a little bit of a laugh with him. And I have you ever seen the film Stage Beauty? I don't think so. 
Um, I think I have it. I do recommend it to anyone that's listening. It's a very, very good film. It doesn't necessarily focus on Charles, but it focuses on the impact of women being allowed back into acting. And it follows one particular man who um, was the most beautiful actress of his time in that he always played the female roles and then the woman who came and took his role from him and I believe it is based on the true story but um, Charles is played fantastically by Rupert Everett in it oh really? yeah and um, you see him and his relationship with Nell Gwynn and um, it's it's very very good fun and there's some fa- there's a fantastic cast in it I really do recommend it what's it called? it's called Stage Beauty and um, yeah, it's it's a good film to show the impact of the changes that he brought back into into the country following the restoration. To be fair, Oliver Cromwell, we we aren't his biggest fans. Are we not? But he Have took noticed? a lot of the fun side of life. Yeah, from Britain, like you said, Christmas was a sin. Like makeup, Sinful. sports, plays, sinful. Everything. Sinful. Even going to church on Christmas Day. Sinful. Music. Sinful. Yeah. So, I'm not saying Charles wasn't awesome because I love him. Because you know I love him. He's second up. Third. Yeah, he's your third bay. He's it's my third bay. Edward Henry Charles. Yes. Um, any king that came after Oliver Cromwell would have done... Would have... Yeah, to be fair... You would have been <laughs> renowned as being the guy... Or the girl, because we had queens then. Yeah. Like, to bring the love, the laughter and everything back to England. So even, I think, personally, even if they had been rubbish as king or queen, if they would just brought back all of this stuff, yeah, they would have been known as doing an amazing job. Yeah. Not saying that he didn't. No. But I'm saying that he was following on from the worst person in the world. But since Charles II came back in 1660, we have had an unbroken monarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily the same biological line, although they are all related. Yeah. Um, not a straight line, so to speak, but they are still an unbroken monarchy. And hopefully for many more years to come, because let's face it, they're a massive tourism draw. I'm looking forward to seeing Charles, William and hopefully George in our lifetime. Yes. So it would be, oh gosh, yeah, it would be George, George VII, would it? Yes. Yeah. Charles III, William V, George VII. And then whoever George has as children. Yeah. But George is only five, so the thought of him having children is really... No, George is not allowed to grow up at this point. He's adorable, he's five, none of them are allowed to grow up. Nope. No. Nope. <laughs> Did you know, this is a kind of a little segue, to a point, that um, with Oliver Cromwell, mm-hmm. when Charles took the throne, he did get rid of a lot of the laws, except for one, which is still in place today... I think I know the one you're going to say. Yep, that you can't... It's illegal to eat mince pies on Christmas Day. So anybody... in England. Anybody that has a mint... In England has a mince pie on Christmas Day. Sinful. You're breaking the law. How could you? <gasps> Rude. <gasps> so, ridiculous death. Yes. We've got... It's, it's quite a short one today. Okay. But um, there... It's from 1667. So stay oh, in right, the 1600s. Okay. So Charlie had been back by for seven years yeah. at this point. By the way, we called him Charlie to distinguish from Charles's father. Yes. Not just, you know, a familiarity, although, you know, why not? Charlie. Hey. Sorry. Cool. <laughs> and we're staying kind of close to home. Okay. Uh, we're going to Cambridge. Okay. So about an hour up the road. I was there today. Oh, right, About okay. an hour up the road. Nice place. And it's the death of a one James Betts. Okay. 
Now, James was... I don't. I wouldn't go as far as maybe a relationship, but he was having some fun with an Elizabeth Spencer. Okay. And um, they were both studying at the Corpus Christi College in Cambridge. Studying in inverted commas. Yeah. And Elizabeth's father, John Spencer, um, was a clergyman, mm-hmm. um, a lawyer, and also was the Grand Master of this college. Oh, aim high. Okay, yeah, right. Oh. So he wasn't aware of this rendezvous, this love affair, this friends with benefits that his daughter Elizabeth had with James. Okay. So one day, one evening, they were getting jiggy with it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Sorry. Um, Elizabeth received an unexpected visit from her father. Oh, to which she quickly had to hide James in a cupboard. As you would do. To hide him from her dad. Nice and cliche. Except... oh here it comes. ...the ceiling of this cupboard caused him to have asphyxiation and die. <laughs> <laughs> he suffocated in the cupboard because his girlfriend's dad came over. Whoops. I mean, that's probably a harder one to explain than just doing it. <laughs> It's like, I, I, you know, just open the cupboard and be like, there seems to be a dead man in your cupboard. A dead naked man. A dead naked man. Explain this. It would have been easier if you were having an affair. Now it looks like murder. <laughs> it, it didn't look like murder, my love. It, it was. Well, <laughs> Teddy, manslaughter. manslaughter. Yeah, manslaughter. She didn't mean to kill him. She sealed him in a cupboard and that yeah. happened. So, yeah. Either way, it's, it's awkward, but it is one way to end a relationship if you just won't take the hint. Uh, yep, just be- oh my dad is here quickly into this cupboard <laughs> ten years later don't try this at home we accept no <laughs> reso- low liability for anybody killed in a cupboard right no, no. we do not <laughs> so yeah that was King and Charles II I'm very glad we got to do King Charles II because I adore that man there is a hell of a lot more on him on his foreign policy the wars he was involved with because there was, there was a third Dutch war um and a lot about him and his mistresses, but we tried to condense it as much as possible because we're nice like that. Yes, and uh, we might go back to him another day or or um, specifically look at some wars or anything of things that happened during it, maybe even the, the plagues and the fire, because there's a lot more into all of that. Oh, um, the plague. But I'm very happy, because we seem <laughs> to have done a lot of people that you like, but we haven't done Henry VIII yet or Edward IV. Henry VIII is probably going to be one of our our long episodes, let's be honest. I don't know, maybe we could have a segment, a series of Henry VIII and focus on... Henry VIII, wife part one, wife part two, wife part three. Talking of Henry VIII, we're watching Britain's Got Talent here in the UK and the girls from Six, the musical, are performing, so we're going to have to go and put the kettle on. But thanks very much for listening and we will speak to you next Tuesday. Bye.